Why don't we uh, pray? Father, I pray that as we enter into again to this book of Revelation and we look at the church at Philadelphia, that you would encourage us uh, as you encourage them. I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding, and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. You know, in my adult life, um, I was in the army for a while, and then I was in ministry and then business and back in ministry. I learned two different one-minute management systems, two vastly different. There's one you're probably very familiar with. It's a book by Ken Blanchard called The One-Minute Manager. And there was another one-minute management system that I learned in the Ranger Battalion. Quite different. One of them has to do with catching people doing bad. The other has to do with catching them doing good. You see, in a Ranger Battalion... Um, you are expected to perform above and beyond 100% of the time. And so if no one said anything to you, that would be considered high praise. Long as you were not catching anyone's attention. But if you did sort of fall below the standard, you might hear something like, Alan, you got about one minute to get squared away. Right? One minute management. On the other hand, on the other end of the continuum, once I got, I worked for Eli Lilly for a while and we had to read several books and things. The other end of the continuum is the one minute manager who says that really if you want to motivate people, which by the way, the Ranger one was very motivating, at least to me, but on the other end of the continuum, he says to motivate people, you've got to catch them doing something good. In other words, they're, they're, they, just, they, they perform at some baseline, and whenever they, every now and then, give, go above and beyond, then you catch them doing something good, and you praise them or reward them somehow, give them a Starbucks card, and that will ultimately motivate them. Now, I think there's actually a place for both of those styles of management, and the reason why is because Jesus uses both of them. We, we saw it last week. You know what we saw last week when we looked at the Church of Pergamum? We saw Jesus doing the Ranger one-minute management program. Remember what he said to them? He rebuked them, and then he says, if you, if you do not get squared away, I will come to you like a thief in the night, and I will remove you. In other words, you got about one minute, Pergamum, to get your act together. On the other hand, this week we look at Philadelphia, or it was Sardis last week, I'm sorry. Sardis. Now, this week as we look at Philadelphia, he actually catches them doing something good, and he doesn't say anything negative. Remember, there were two churches in the book of Revelation which, which Jesus did not rebuke, he didn't criticize, he only caught them doing what they were doing good, and he encouraged them. Could he have nitpicked and found something to, to criticize them about? Sure, he could have. Their church. On the other hand, he picked out what they were doing well, and he went with it. And so as we look at the book of Revelation, I just remind you that it's one book or one letter written to seven churches. And within that one letter, there are seven different letters to these seven churches. And all of them, we talked about last week, had a similar problem. Either they were like uh, Philadelphia that we're going to see today, that were actually doing a good job being outwardly faced, but they needed Jesus to encourage them to continue, or they were not being outwardly faced at all, like Ephesus. Remember, he said to them, you lost your first love. You see, all of the seven letters in Revelation, one of the issues, or the primary issue that, that Jesus is getting at, is they're either failing to be outwardly faced, or they're in danger of not being outwardly faced, or another a Christian way to say this, they're failing in their witness to the world around them. 
And what Jesus wants them to do is encourage them in that direction. And so last week we looked at what it means to be outwardly faced. And remember, it's all about ethos and not about tasks. It's all about relationships and not about programs. Well, there's something that actually comes before being outwardly faced. And that, of course, is being uh, gospel-driven. In other words, if you don't understand the gospel, you're not going to be outwardly faced. Or to the extent that you understand the gospel is the extent to which you will be outwardly faced. And so, you know, there are lots of books being written now about what it means to be gospel-driven or gospel-centered, lots of papers, lots of internet posts. And I thought I would boil it down for you this morning. It really consists of two things. It consists of, the, firstly, the way we read the Bible, and the second is the way we live our lives. So when I say to be gospel-driven or to be gospel-centered has to do with the way we read our Bible, what do I mean? Well, just this. I mean that the way we read our Bible, if you're gospel-driven or gospel-centered, is that you read every book of the Bible and see the primary purpose of every single book is to point to the person and work of Jesus. In other words, oftentimes if you get a crowd of, of Christians together and you say, what's the purpose of the Bible? I've done it here. And people would say, it teaches how to live a holy life. That's true. Teaches how to be good parents. Yeah. Teaches how to be good, good children. Yeah. All, the, all these things are marginally true. But the primary reason that God gave us the Bible is to teach us and point us toward the person and work of Jesus. And so that's why if you're a preacher, for example, at least in my opinion, if you're preaching from the book of Genesis or Leviticus or Exodus, at some point you better show people how that connects to the person and work of Jesus. That's what Jesus did. Remember in John chapter 5, he's arguing with the Pharisees and they basically don't believe in him. And he says, the, the reason you, you, don't, you don't believe in me, you didn't believe Moses. And your problem, at the end of the age, Moses is going to be your accuser because Moses wrote about me. So the whole Old Testament and the whole New Testament is written to point us toward the person and work of Jesus. And that leads to the next point, or the next, the next least point for what it means to be gospel-driven, is that not only is the way we read our Bible, but it, it also affects the way we live our lives. In other words, what, negatively speaking, what it does not mean to be gospel-driven in your life is to be constantly asking the question, what would Jesus do? In other words, if you're ask, constantly asking the question, what would Jesus do, what does that really, how does that help? For one, if you're a Christian or not a Christian, you can still ask the same question and probably come up with the same answer. Would Jesus help this guy? I guess so. Given what I know of him, I guess so. But then you get into questions of how would he help this guy? How would he not? Would he give him money? Would he take him into his home? Would he do all these things? So in other words, by asking the question, what would Jesus do? You, in some sense, let yourself off the hook because you can never really figure out what he does or what he would do. And since you can't really figure out what he would do, then you, well, you might as well not do it. And you could see you end up almost becoming a legalist if you really want to follow it because you're constantly saying, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And it really gets you nowhere. The better question to ask is this, is WHJD. In other words, instead of when you, in every situation in your life, when it comes to being a husband, a parent, a, a, a wife, a teacher, a business person, a doctor, lawyer, whatever it is in life, instead of asking the question every minute of the day, what would Jesus do? I don't know what Jesus would do if he was a heart surgeon. I don't know what Jesus would do if he's... But you can ask yourself in any given situation, when you start asking yourself this question, what has Jesus done? Jesus has rescued me from the tyranny of the devil. 
He has delivered me from all of my sins. He has paid for them on the cross with his own blood. He is, God has imputed to me or credited to me the righteousness of Jesus. And now when he looks on me, he is completely pleased with me. And now when I think, what, it, what does it mean to be a father? I, how is that based not on what would Jesus do, but given what Jesus has done, how should that, that bear itself out of my life? How could I not be thankful? When you think about your giving, what would Jesus do? Would Jesus give? I don't know, he was poor. But given what Jesus has done for you, what has Jesus done? You'd say, well, that that should affect everything. So what it means to be gospel-driven is to ask yourself constantly, what has Jesus done? And when we looked at the overall purpose of the book of Revelation, really, remember I told you it was sort of threefold? That on one hand it was to teach us that Jesus has won definitively. He has paid for our sins. He has conquered the, the devil completely in the past. It's a done deal. On the other hand, it teaches us that he will win in the future. That someday in the future he will come and transform our status as forgiven and justified into our state. That we will actually be that thing that he proclaims us to be. And even more than that, right now he is winning. And so when you want to know what it means to be gospel-driven, you're constantly asking yourself the question, what has Jesus done? And when you ask that, it changes everything. And when you ask that, it affects whether or not you're outwardly faced. Because to the extent you understand what Jesus has done for you, you'll want to see him do that to other people, and you will be involved in seeing people come to know Jesus. So with all of that said, we dive in today to the church in Philadelphia Let's look real quickly at a couple of things we see about this church. For the first of all, the, about the church in Philadelphia is the youngest of the seven cities. I think it was founded in about 189 B.C. Um, the second thing you see there is it's the original city of brotherly love. And usually when you, if you hear the phrase the city of brotherly love, we, you tend to think it, it's because the, the city is friendly. And the city of Philadelphia may or may not have been friendly. It was named, most people believe, they, they don't know which brother it was named after, either um, the king of, of Eumenes II of Pergamum named the, the city after his younger brother, Attalus Philadelphus, or his younger brother named it after himself in honor of his brother. That seems a little weird, but that's one of the stories too. Either way, the, the legend has it, is that it was named because these two brothers had such a deep love for each other, not because of the city was friendly. That's just a bit of trivia. More trivia, but it's interesting, is that it was also known as a missionary city. It was known as a missionary city before the gospel ever came to it. So what was it a missionary city for? For what was it a missionary city? It was, it was at, at basically at the middle of everything. It was right in the middle of the trade routes. It was right in the middle of the, the postal routes. It was known as the gateway to the east. And so when Alexander realized that, he said that this will be the place from where we will spread the Greek language throughout the world, at least the the world that they knew, Asia Minor and and beyond. And they did that. And so they were missionaries, not for Jesus, because he hadn't even come yet, but for the Greek language. Now, one of the great beauties of God's providence is because they did that, the Greek language went everywhere. When Jesus did come, everyone was ready to receive it because there was more or less a common language. Finally, they, were, they also, it's not finally, but they were also agriculturally prosperous, primarily in a viticulture, I think it's called. They grew grapes, lots of grapes, and made lots of wine. The, the, the patron saint of the city of Philadelphia was Dionysus. Remember I told you Dionysus is also known as Bacchus, the god of wine. 
But it wasn't probably because they partied a lot. It was probably because they just grew it and sold it and they, they made their living from wine. The reason that grapes grew so well there apparently is because it was very volcanic and they had rich volcanic soil there. Now that comes into play in a couple of ways because you're going to read later on that he talks about a trial that's going to face the whole world. Shortly after the book, at some point during the time around when the book of Revelation was written, there was a great famine in Asia Minor. And Domitian, the emperor, came and told them, uh, the people of Philadelphia, they need to quit growing half of their grapes and to grow corn. Well, apparently corn doesn't grow in volcanic soil, and so they lost their livelihood. Many people lost everything. But there was something bigger. Because they were in this, this volcanic area, they were completely and utterly prone to earthquakes. In 17 AD, both Sardis and Philadelphia were completely leveled by earthquakes. But apparently, wherever the fault line is, Philadelphia was the closest to it. So even when you get into the 5th century, you have historians writing about the fact that you can't build anything in Philadelphia without the walls cracking. And so it became very interesting. So a lot of people kept their houses and things in the city of Philadelphia, but they actually lived in tents outside the city. In other words, they could never feel comfortable in their city. If you've ever been involved in an earthquake... I remember I, I was born and raised in Florida, and I'll never forget in 2001 sitting in my office in Capitol Hill, and I looked out the window from the second floor, and I saw just people by the dozen scurrying out like rats. And I looked up at the walls of my office, and it was shaking like jello. And then a couple books fell off my shelf, and I thought, I'm in an earthquake right now. And then I just sort of sat there and debated, what am I supposed to do in an earthquake? I know what to do in a hurricane, but a hurricane has warning. They even give it a name. An earthquake just comes on you, sort of like a thief in the night. And so one of the things that meant to be a Philadelphian was to be constantly on edge and constantly worried about whether your house was going to come down or constantly worried about whether you're going to have a place to live. That's even if you are wealthy. And that's going to come into play because when we get to the end, what God is going to encourage them with is actually a lot of stability that they have never known before. So as we jump into this, remember each time we've looked at one of these letters, the opening verse to any one of these letters gives you a clue to what the letter is either going to be about or a clue to what the problem is or a clue to what the, the, the solution to that problem is. And the clue always comes from the beginning. John's opening vision. He had an opening vision, verses 9 through 20, where Jesus is described in all these Old Testament terms. And when you read this letter, it opens up a little differently. Look at verse 7. It says, To the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now these words, by the way, are not in the opening vision that John has. And so how do they fit? Are they consistent with that? And they absolutely are, because if you look at verse 18, I think it is, of chapter 1, Remember, it says there that he is the first and the last, the living one. He was dead and now he's alive. And he has the keys to death and Hades. So in some sense, this is, is a positive outworking of what you saw in the opening vision. But the point is, among other things, that there is only one set of keys. The same set of keys to death and Hades are the same keys that are also the key of David. And the question is, what is the key of David? We're going to sing at the end of this, of this service from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, where they sing about the key of David coming. And apparently what this key does is it opens something that no one can shut, and it shuts something that no one can open. Now what is it that it opens, and what is it that it shuts? 
If you want further Old Testament info, by the way, it's Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. It's almost word for word what this says. It's where Eliakim is given the keys to, to the kingdom, basically. But what Jesus is saying here is that I am the one. I am the one who opens the kingdom. I am the one who closes the kingdom. And what I open, no one can shut. And what, you, what is shut, no one can open. And that's going to be important because part of the context of the letter to Philadelphia is persecution, namely at the hands of those who were Jews. And most people believe that they were actually had been excommunicated or kicked out of the synagogue. So now they live in a place that's not very stable geologically. Uh, the emperor maybe has taken half of their crops and now they can't even go to the synagogue. And Jesus is saying, you might be kicked out of the synagogue, but you need to remember something else, that you are part of the kingdom. And if you're part of the kingdom, you're part of something that I have opened and what I have opened, no one can shut and what I have shut, no one can open. In other words, if you are in, it's because Jesus has opened the kingdom to you. That's important. We're going to talk maybe a little bit more next week about how important that is. Because Jesus, there's one set of keys and Jesus has given them to one group of people, actually. Remember Matthew 16. He hands the keys over to the apostles, to the church, that ultimately it's the church who does this. But Jesus right now is encouraging them by saying, I am the one who holds the key of David. And I'm the one who holds the key to the entry to the kingdom. And then he event, immediately, what's interesting about this letter more than any other, he immediately jumps into their strengths. He has no criticism for this church. And what are their strengths? Verse 8, he says, I know your works. Behold, I've set you before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So, just like the other churches, he says, I know your works. And then he says, behold, or look. He wants their attention. Look, I've seen something about you. And one is, he says, I've set before you an open door. Now, what does it mean there? Honestly, no one really knows. Most people think if you're consistent with the rest of the New Testament, wherever the rest of the New Testament uses this idea of a door being opened, it don't, it's in every case, it's an opportunity for evangelism or an opportunity for the gospel to be taken to people who don't know it. So maybe Jesus is encouraging them by saying it might be hard where you live. You might be persecuted. You might be financially unstable. You might be geologically unstable. But nonetheless, in the context of all of your trouble and trials, the door is still open for you to be outwardly faced and to tell people about Christ. And on one hand, on the other hand, he says, I know you have but little power. And that probably means something like, I know you, you seem small and you seem insignificant, yet in spite of the fact that uh, you've kept my word and you have not denied my name, the positive aspect of that is you have proclaimed my name. You see, one of the things I think in modern day Christianity that makes it difficult for churches, I mean, we're actually not a, a particularly small church, but what makes it difficult for smaller churches to to sort of keep on trucking is because of this sort of rise of celebrity pastors and celebrity churches. I mean, I've had people in my office before where I've literally had to say, if, I'm not even your pastor, someone else is, and I think you should go to that church. Because people want the power and the glory of sort of the celebrity pastor and the celebrity church. But in fact, Jesus is calling every church, whether it's the big, powerful, wealthy church, like remember, that's how Pergamum was. Or it's the small church that is continuing to be faithful. What matters is, are you being outwardly faced? 
The interesting thing is if you're being outwardly faced, you generally speaking don't stay small and powerless for long. Because people, God has promised that he's going to draw people unto himself. And the question is, do you trust him in that? And remember also, whenever you see kept my word here, a, a better way maybe to translate that so it's understandable is, is the word held fast. You've held fast to my word. You've held fast to my command to, to reach people. You've held fast to my command to proclaim my name. And they would probably be described, if nothing else, as faithful. They were faithful in their witness, faithful in their obedience, faithful in everything. And again, different than most of the letters, Jesus goes from their, the, this sort of opening clue to their strengths immediately into all these promises. I'm going to give you four sort of over categories for the promises, but I think if I remember, there are about seven in here, depending on how you slice them. The first promise in verse 9 is he promises them vindication against the people that are persecuting them. He also promises them preservation. He promises them by way of exhortation in verse 11. And finally, he gives them this declaration that is full of promises. So let's look first at vindication. What's the promise of vindication for them? He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Remember we saw this before in the church to Smyrna where Jesus says, he talks about those who are the synagogue of Satan. And we talked about all, you know, if you look up on the internet, different people think different things with regard to the synagogue of Satan. Some people think, you know, it's it's the Illuminati maybe, it's the synagogue of Satan. Other people, you know, think it's places in the Middle East. Other people, remember I told you even one place blamed it on Colonel Sanders because he puts an addictive chemical in his chicken that makes it the synagogue of Satan because you can't keep from going there. That's not what it means, probably. Jesus said the same thing to Smyrna. The key word is that they they say they're Jews but are not. They lie. That what makes the, the synagogue there, the synagogue of Satan, is the fact that they do not tell the truth. They do not tell the truth about Jesus being Messiah. They do not tell the truth about the Christians. Remember in Smyrna, we know that the Jews basically ratted out the Christians. They told the Romans that that they were doing things that they weren't. They lied about them in order to get them in trouble. So what makes someone of the synagogue of Satan is whether they're truth tellers or not. And what's interesting here is he says that they're the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not. How can they be Jews but are not if they are ethnically Jewish? In other words, they're not people going around Gentiles masquerading as if they are Jews. These are actual Jewish people who Jesus says they are not Jews. You see, as we get more and more into the book of Revelation, you're going to find one of the big controversy in the controversies in the book of Revelation is what to do with the Jewish people. Is there a different plan for the Jewish people than there is for the church? And I think more and more, if you read it closely, you're going to find, in my opinion, probably not. Because what makes someone a Jew or not, Jesus says, here it's implied, you see in the book of Galatians, you see other places, that what makes someone a child of Abraham is whether or not they have faith in Jesus. And so he says, those who say they are Jews but are not, and he says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that is one of the most outrageous, crazy, world upside-down turning statements that you have ever heard, and you don't even know it. Why? Because all throughout, 
the Old Testament. Jesus, uh, God promises the Jewish people, he says, what's going to happen is at the end of time, all the Gentiles will come and they will bow down at your feet. And what Jesus is saying here to this Gentile church, that what's going to happen is at the end of all time, what's going to happen is these Jewish people who have kicked you out of the synagogue, who say they're Jews but they're not, they will actually bow down at your feet. In other words, the, the true people of God will have vindication. vindication. You see in Isaiah 60, 14 is one version of this. It says, the sons, he's talking to Jewish people, the sons who have afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who are despised you shall bow down at their feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion, and the, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So what Jesus is getting at here is that you, church, Philadelphia, you, church, FEPC, you, church, any church that feels beaten down, that there will come a day when the people of God will be revealed and those who are not of the people of God will see that. And what does it mean that they'll bow down at your feet? I have no idea. But there will come a day when you feel, even though you might feel beaten down and behind the curve now, that someday you will be revealed to be sons of the Most High. And the next thing we see here is preservation which in some sense could be another controversial verse. He says in verse 10, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now what is Jesus saying here, first of all? It sounds like he's saying that if you, do, if you keep my word, I will keep you. And there's in some sense, he is saying that. But the first part of this is pretty difficult to translate and it might be better translated to say because you have kept the word about my patient endurance. In other words, if it just says because you kept the word, my word about patient endurance, it sort of has no context. It has no, what, about patient endurance, what do you mean there? Most people think it believes because you've kept the word about my patient endurance, because you've embraced me, because you've trusted in my work, I will keep you. In other words, because you hold fast to me, I will hold fast to you. Now, what happens if we don't hold fast to Jesus? Does that mean he's not going to hold fast to us? You see, part of the bigger context, even as the rest of John's letters, remember he says, this is love, not that, that you love God, but that God loved you and gave his son as a, an atoning sacrifice. But there is a sense in which Jesus is saying, because you held on to me, I will hold on to you. The bigger question or the controversial question is when he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, what does he mean there? Does he mean the whole world sometime in the future? Does he mean the, the, the whole world sometime in the near future? In other words, just for Philadelphia? And the word keep, I will keep you from the hour of trial could actually be translated in two different ways. It could mean something like, I will remove you from the hour of trial, or it could be translated also, I will protect you in the hour of trial. So which is it? Well, remember, you're always trying to interpret the Bible with the rest of the Bible. So one place to look to start is John chapter 17, verse 15. Note, Jesus is praying for his disciples, and he, he says to God, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
So in, in other words, Jesus is praying that when trials, tribulations, troubles come, when he prays to God, he says, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, because how can they witness if they're out of the world? But I pray that you would keep them from the work of the evil one. You see, one principle that you see in all of Scripture is just this, that if you have trusted Jesus, you will never have to experience the wrath of God. Never, ever. If you're not a Christian here, and you want to escape the wrath of God, there is one place to go, and that is the person and work of Jesus. And if you have trusted Jesus, you will never escape his wrath. I mean, you, you will never experience his wrath. The Bible teaches that. But what the Bible does not teach is that if you're a Christian, you will always and ever escape the wrath of Satan. And, you know, just this week, I was reading, doing my yearly Bible reading and came across Job, and every time I read it, I don't know, I'm shocked at it. Remember, God is in his heavenly court with his angels, and it says Satan comes before God, and God says to Satan, where have you been and where, what are you doing? And he says, I've been roaming the earth looking for someone to devour. Do you remember what comes next? God says, have you considered my servant Job? In other words, Satan doesn't come and say, can I test Job? Satan says, I'm looking for anybody, and God says, how about Job? Because Job will escape the wrath of God, but he does not escape the wrath of Satan. That part of the, way, the, the reason that Christians are left in the world is to, or, to witness in the world in spite of the fact that there is suffering and through suffering and in the face of suffering. You're going to see that over and over and over again as we get deeper into the book of Revelation. That the purpose of God almost never is to, to remove us from trials and tribulation, but is to be faithful to us in the context of trials and tribulations. And so that leads us to what the question is, is the hour of trial, what does that mean? Is that something that, is, is that one big hour of trial at the end of all time? Well, whether it is or whether it isn't, the question is, will Christians experience it? I think the context says that they will. I also think the context here says that more, he's talking more about a local event. There was a famine around this time as well that most people call that tribulation, like a major act of God. And the emperor came down on them in the middle of it. And part of the reason I think that is because of his next exhortation in which he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. In other words, I think the exhortation, for the, the, the idea of a trial coming on the world that he's going to keep them from, he actually tells them, I'm coming soon. See to it that no one takes your crown. But it's interesting, remember last week when we looked at, at the letter to Sardis, when Jesus says he's coming soon, it's a threat. In this church, when he says he's coming soon, it's a promise. It's all on your, based on your perspective. If you're someone who has trusted Jesus and as a result are living, living out the gospel, the fact that he would come soon should be a great comfort to you. If you're a person who's not a Christian or not living out the gospel or not living as you ought to live, the fact that he's coming ought to be a bit disconcerting to you. That leads to the next and last batch of promises. And they're made to the one who conquers. In verse 12, the first thing he says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. What a great, remember, the one who conquers is the one who's trusted in the works of Jesus. We've looked at that several times. 
But the person who conquers, the first thing he says to people who are constantly having to leave their house, who are constantly having to run when the earthquake comes, is you guys yourselves will be pillars in the temple of my God. Never shall they go out of it. Now, is he talking about a physical temple? No more than Peter is when Peter says you are living stones. It has to do with stability. The, the most stable place in a, in a temple is going to be the pillars. That's why they're there. And he says you are going to be so steadfast in God's temple, which we find at the end of the book of Revelation is God and the Lamb himself. In other words, you will be so steadfastly planted in the presence of God that you can never be moved and will not be moved. Never will you go out of it. And not only that, but you will also be part of something bigger, part of a family. He says, and I, write, I will write on him, the one who conquers, first the name of my God, and then he says, the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of God, out of heaven, and then he says, my own name. So he gives them sort of this threefold seal, and the first thing he says is, I will put on them the name of my God. And what that means in the Old Testament, what that means ultimately in the New Testament, we're going to do it in the profession of faith, is just this. It, it's the language of adoption. That, that your name is changed. You, your, your last name is changed, maybe, to the last name of God. You become part of God's family. You're one of his children now. And that name will be placed upon you. You will be given that name. It will be declared about you. And then also he says, you'll have the name of the city of my God. That you will not only be part of God, be, belong to God's family, but you'll belong to God's city. And it's, it's a city that will never be shaken, and it's a city out of which you'll never be uh, thrown out. And then the last thing he says, I will give you my own new name. Remember we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you know, that he will give us a new name. And here it says, he will give us my new name. Now what does that mean exactly? Honestly, most people don't know. At least when you think about what name is he going to give? Does that mean the name of Jesus will be planted on me or the name of Christ? What does that mean? Really, it has more to do, I think, with relationship than it has to do with what the actual name is. You know, most people don't know this, but when I was in college, I dated, I got out of the army, I went to college, I, I dated a, a couple folks, and at some point I just got tired and I said, I prayed and I said, God, you should, can you just like find me some Presbyterian girl? I don't want to argue about theology. I don't want to, you know, any of this. And not long after that, I met a, a beautiful Presbyterian girl. The first night, we both went to a Bible study. And her name was Judy Allen. Same that last name as mine. That was odd. So we became friends, and we dated, and eventually we got married. And, you know, it was just interesting, the whole dynamic, because I know a lot of, I have all daughters, and a lot of girls think, gosh, I hope I don't, you know, Get, get the name Schlabowski or something when I get married. You know, some, something different when you've got an easily pronounceable name. I said, well, girls, you know, we'll <laughs> look at the census for Allens. I don't know how to help you there. You know, you fall in love with who you fall in love with. But, you know, so what do you do when your last name is the name that you're marrying into? She went to the Social Security office and driver's license office and said, I'm here to tell you my name. And, you know, they said, you don't need to do anything. Just go home. So she literally didn't have to do any of that. She didn't have to change anything. But the, the exercise was a good one because really what she was telling them was not about her change in name because that didn't change. What changed was her status. 
And that's what Jesus is talking about here. It's even bigger than that. It's not only where your status changed, but the, but the status that you have now, if you've trusted him, will become your state. You'll actually take my name. Why? Because that's the wedding day. Right now we talk about being married to Jesus, but really we're just sort of betrothed to Jesus. Not until the final consummation will the wedding happen. And at the wedding feast of the Lamb, when we are, we are brought into the household of the Father and into the city of the Lamb, we will be given the name ultimately of Jesus the Son. And that is an encouraging thing. Here, finally, the last words that he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen and amen. Think about that. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would just um, encourage us as Jesus encouraged the church at Philadelphia where we are faithful. Encourage us where we are proclaiming your name. And we're, when we're not doing those things, I pray that you would, you would go to us. I pray that you would, you would uh, exhort us. Also, Father, many people here, I'm assuming, feel as if their, their world is on sort of shaky ground, whether it's uh, shaky relationships, shaky health issues, shaky financial issues. Uh, encourage them with the fact that there comes a day and will come a day ultimately when those will not be issues anymore. And that you've promised even now not to deliver them maybe from their trials and struggles, but in fact to deliver them through their trials and struggles. Father, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.